Hi there, I'm Jake Humphrey. This is High Performance and this is an amazing episode. I can't wait for you to hear this because this is the podcast that reminds you it's within your purpose, your story, your ambition. They're all there. All we do is unlock it by turning the lived experiences or the great learnings from the planet's highest performers into your life lessons. And right now, we have a really special episode because today we welcome best-selling author James Clear, who delivers us one of the most compelling episodes of this podcast since we started three years ago. Here's what's in store. Every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you wish to become. And I think this is the real reason, the true reason that habits matter, is that they reinforce your identity. You know, the tighter that you cling to your current identity, the harder it becomes to grow beyond it. Who's the type of person I want to cast votes for? What is the type of identity I wish to reinforce? And how are my habits shaping the story that I have about myself? And if you can get those two things aligned, then the results can kind of come as a natural byproduct. Man, you'd be surprised how often people are already making enough money to support their life, but then they choose to make more money but live a worse daily life. If you're already at that threshold, to choose to make more money and live worse days seems like an awful trade. If you only show up on the good days, you're not really getting any separation between you and the average person. In a way, greatness only reveals itself on the bad days. Oh, man. Right, so... We recorded this just recently. Um, James was in the US. We were both in the UK. And sometimes I hate it when we're not with the guest because I just feel like I don't get a connection. But this was the total opposite. Like James was fully invested, really keen to come on the podcast, shares so much with us. And I have honestly taken a whole bunch of things away from this that have already changed the way that I interact with people on a daily basis, the way that I think, the way that I live my life. I'm really, really excited for you to hear this one. So I'm just going to shut up and let James take it away. I'm just over the moon and excited that you get to hear the kinds of learnings and lessons from a best-selling author who has such a unique take. Just do one thing for me, okay? Listen to this and then share it because I want so many people to hear this episode. Enjoy James Clear with myself and Professor Hughes on the High Performance Podcast. Small details are big surfaces, tight corners or odd shapes, flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rustolium. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. James, thank you again for joining us on High Performance. Yeah, of course. Of course. Yeah, I'm uh, excited to talk to you. Let's start with this question. In your mind, what is high performance? There are kind of two things come to mind. Either um, fulfilling your potential. So, you know, we're capable of so much, but it is so rare to have a moment where you are fully utilized. So fulfilling your potential seems like it qualifies. Related to that, not being your own bottleneck, we are again, capable of so much, but talk ourselves out of so many opportunities, of so many achievements, attempts. Um, You know, in many ways, the hardest thing is not to keep winning, but to keep reaching uh, because you often talk yourself out of trying something else. So if you're not your own bottleneck, you're in a position to be, uh, to fulfill your potential. Those are the two things that struck me first. Okay, so human beings first appeared on earth around 2 million years ago. So why are we still talking ourselves out of things? Why are we still our own bottleneck? Why have we still not managed to get to this point where we fulfill our potential? Because it feels to me like every generation learns all the things the previous generation learned. Yeah, that's probably true. Um, Trade-offs, I guess. Um, A lack of self-awareness, competing priorities. I think all these things play a factor. Not being clear about what you're optimizing for. No one's out there trying to make a poor decision. You know, nobody is trying to waste their time or be ineffective. I think it's just that life is dynamic and what we were previously optimizing for may not be what we should be optimizing for in the moment. Or maybe we've entered a new season of life and we're slow on the uptake. We kind of are still inheriting the inertia or the old habits that we've been following and we haven't upgraded or improved our strategies yet. Maybe... What we really want is a little bit different than what is socially accepted or what we would be praised for or what um, the people around us want. And so we're forced into this tension between choosing what we feel like we want internally and what we feel like we'll be praised and supported for. And in many cases, the desire to belong will overpower the desire to improve. And so this desire that we all have to bond and connect, to be a part of community, to fit in with our friends and family. Sometimes that conflicts with fulfilling your potential. It's really being forced into these trade-offs over and over again that makes it a continuous battle to try to return and refocus on what matters most to you or clarify what is important in this season so that you can recommit to those habits and maybe shape your environment or your social groups in a way that supports it rather than hinders it. So if we're talking about removing ambiguity from our world, James, I think that's a really appropriate place to almost jump in with you because your writing is brilliantly unambiguous. You know, like it's a real, it's a great compliment that I was saying to Finn, our producer before, that when you're reading your book, like what often occurs to me is that the ideas are very familiar, but the way you express them is really clear and unambiguous. So how do you remove ambiguity from your world to keep that clarity of intention and purpose behind what you do? 
complexity often is just like kind of a mask or a disguise. And, uh, you know, what we really want is actually pretty simple most of the time. And, but getting to the root of that, sifting away through all of the noise and finding the signal takes a lot of effort and a lot of work. You know, I don't know that I have this figured out any better than anyone else. You know, I, I struggle with all the same things everybody else struggles with. And that's why I write about the topics to begin with. You know, my my publisher said to me when I was working on Atomic Habits, we write the books we need. And, you know, I definitely felt that way. I mean, I you know, do I procrastinate? Sure, all the time. You know, like, have I focused too much on the goal and not enough on the system? Yeah, absolutely. And so it's really a lot of these messages are reminders to myself to refocus on the process or try to commit to building better habits to get back on track quickly and not let one mistake become a dozen mistakes. So, um, I don't know that I have a good answer to how to live a life with clarity, but some of the things that I try to do include not doing too many things. So if you're optimizing for too many things at once it's very hard to remain clear, you just have too many irons in the fire. There's too much going on. That is easy to do when you're choosing between a good use of time and a bad use of time. It becomes harder to do, and I think this it becomes increasingly true as you get deeper and deeper into your career. It becomes harder to do when you're choosing between good uses of time and great uses of time. In a sense, the most dangerous things on your to-do list, the things that are most likely to remove clarity and cause confusion and introduce a sense of overwhelm are items like three through five on your priority list, because you have a good story for why you're doing those things. That's why they're on the list to begin with. And smart people are so good at coming up with like valid excuses or developing stories that sound really uh, reasonable. So you'll look at that list and you'll be like, Oh, well, I, I need to do this. Like, this is number three, you know, like I, I have it on the list for a reason. This is a good way to spend time. I'll be productive. But the truth is items three through five are actually the greatest distraction to doing items one and two, because you can convince yourself that you're being productive while still avoiding the highest leverage work. So not taking on too many projects, I think is uh, a really crucial part of it. Obviously there's sort of a connecting point there, like a pre-step, which is you need to know what you're optimizing for. You need to know what what is the most important thing. And that requires a little bit of self-reflection. Can I just dive in and ask you a, a little point on that, James? Mm -hmm. So when we created High Performance, it was basically meant to be a podcast. It wasn't meant to be a podcast and a book and a live tour and corporate speaking and appearing on TV and radio shows and all of the other things that it's become, right? So it's almost procrastination is so easy now for us because there are so many things demanding our attention. So I totally get what you're saying. And I am, I mean, we've, we've been recently writing our theater show and it's number one on the list, but it's number three in terms of the things I've been working on because there are easier things just to move higher up the list. So I'm totally with you. My problem is the things I'm doing rather than what I should be doing, I can't, I feel I can't get rid of because they're coming our way without us asking for them. And I'm sure lots of our listeners will feel the same. What would you say to them? Yeah, it's a, it's a really good point. I think success has this quality where it tends to eat itself. You know, you do something well, and because of that, new opportunities come your way. And if you just think about like each day has a certain amount of surface area where you live those 24 hours and things happen. 
you know, somebody comes up to the door and they knock on it or people send messages to your inbox or you receive something in the mail. You know, it's very unlikely if you keep living days that you're not going to have distractions creep in. That's just kind of part of how the cycle of life works. And so you need to develop a system as that inbound increases for handling and filtering all of it. Sometimes it requires like a really extreme move. Like in my case, once the book took off, for the first couple of years of my life or first couple of years of my business, I would answer every email that came in. Uh, sometimes I was even sending emails. Like I was, you know, somebody signed up to the email list for the first like 10,000 subscribers, which was usually just, you know, 50 a day or something like that. I would send emails out and say, Hey, thanks so much for signing up. Like really excited to have you here. And then you get over 10,000. You can't do that anymore. So then you just respond to the inbound that comes in and then you get over a hundred thousand or 500,000 or whatever it is. And then you can't respond to the inbound anymore. So now the whole inbox is just shut off and it's just on an autoresponder. And I don't love that solution, but I needed an extreme filter like that because otherwise there was no time left to write the next book or to do the thing that got people to come in the first place. So you kind of have to be continually upgrading your filter for what you say no to. And that's a really hard thing to learn because sometimes things that like previously, you know, two years ago, this opportunity would have been the most exciting thing to come across your desk all week. And now you have to say no to it. Um, and so it's difficult to kind of learn that. So is it about placing a, a sorry, is it about placing a value then on the things that come in? Because as an optimist, I, I, I go at everything at a hundred percent and think everything could be the next amazing opportunity. So is this about what's the value of that? You know, like you, I suppose that my mind thinks, well, Hey, sending an email to everyone could be the, the golden ticket that separates you from every other author and brand builder on the planet, you know? Another way I like to think about it is what is the work that keeps working for me once it's done? So, um, you know, I heard this phrase one time about email. It was this executive from Microsoft and he said, email is where keystrokes go to die. And if you think about it, you know, throughout the course of your life, you have a certain number of keystrokes. We all do. We don't know exactly what the number is, but there's some limited finite amount of times that you're going to touch the keys. And the more that you spend those keystrokes on answering emails, the more you're spending those keystrokes on one individual person or, you know, maybe two or three, but for the most part, it's just individual communication. But if you spend those same keystrokes on writing an article that gets posted to the blog, um, well, now a million people could potentially read it. And so that is a way of leveraging those keystrokes in a much more high leverage way. And that is also placing a value on the activity. It's not necessarily a monetary value. It's more thinking about leverage or scale or reach, but that's another way to do it. And then also that question that I just mentioned, what is the work that keeps working for me once it's done? Something like this is a good example. You know, we record this interview and after we're done a year from now, somebody could listen to it. And this work, this time that I'm putting in right now is still going to work for me even after this hour is complete. I'm trying to find ways to kind of like multiply my effort rather than to spend it once and then it's gone. But one of the obvious points that stems from your answer there, James, is that they all direct back to an original source. Now, some people refer to this as a, as a sense of purpose or a sense of mission. What would you say is the sense of mission that you're on that gives you that clarity to then make those decisions? It's probably it's still a little squishy and not like super clearly defined, but I generally I would say it's trying to be useful. Uh, 
I try to maximize for reach rather than revenue. So I'm always trying to like impact the most number of people and not worry as much about the money side. If you do that well, then the money side usually tends to take care of itself. You know, the person with the largest audience usually has a lot of opportunities for driving revenue. So it tends to work out fine. That's kind of my general sense of mission is can I create something useful? Can I try to be as useful to the the broadest number of people possible? You know, there's a little bit of a personality thing associated with that, which is you could like for a long time, I thought about going to medical school. You know, a doctor makes a really meaningful difference in a smaller number of people's lives. So it's like a really high uh, touch, but lower volume sort of thing. Whereas, you know, like 10 million people have read Atomic Habits. I don't think anybody is under the impression that the book is making as big of a difference as like your doctor might make. Um, So it's not as high touch. So it's a it's a lower touch impact, but it's a much broader surface area my personality gravitates towards that more and is interested in that. So it's kind of figuring out what, um, what you're particularly interested in. There is another thing I wanted to mention kind of connected to these last two questions and how you filter your time and thinking about sense of purpose and all that. A lot of the things that you're saying yes to, you may be saying yes to it because your ego is involved or because status is involved or because you're going to be praised for it in a certain way. And when you say, Oh, it's hard for me to give that up. It maybe is just hard for you to give it up because you're like, you know what? I've already invested like 10 years in my career. And if I give this up, then like that means all that time was kind of wasted or like I lose a little bit of the status that I had in the industry. And sometimes that's required to continue to to grow. You know, the tighter that you cling to your current identity, the harder it becomes to grow beyond it. And some of the people that I admire the most, some of the entrepreneurs I've seen grow the most, some of my friends they have this willingness to kind of walk back down the mountain a little bit and then maybe climb an adjacent peak. But that requires a lot of courage to walk back down for a little bit, to look foolish, to start something new, to maybe give up or release a little bit of the status that you had before so that you can try again and become a beginner over again. That requires a lot of courage. And people are a little scared of that, perhaps Perhaps rightly so, but I think generally um, it's not as scary as you think it might be. And the ability to say no to some of those things that you feel like, I have to do this. A lot of the time, the reason you feel like you have to do it is because of the story in your mind about the status that you have or about the, the role that you occupy or the position you want to cling on to. And if you're willing to let release that a little bit, it becomes easier to focus on the new thing. James, I think that's so powerful. And I, I know there'll be lots of people listening to this as we speak, thinking there's loads I do because of what other people think of it or what society makes of it or what my ego believes. You're the king of process. And if people are understanding what you're saying, but then are scared to make that decision, because as you said, it's a big one, what would be the processes that they should consider to make this leap of faith? The process of behavior change almost always starts with self-awareness. So, you know, it's really, it's a conversation you have to have with yourself. And I also don't think that it's something that happens once. It's something that probably is a continual check-in. So having a process or a habit of reflection and review, whether that's once a week or whether it's once a year, whatever cadence makes sense for you, that can be really helpful. Basically what we're just saying is, hey, you need some time to step back and think. I've done this a couple different ways. One interesting thing I did about a year or two ago, I woke up each day and for two weeks, I opened a blank page of my notebook. And the first thing I did was I wrote at the top of the page, what am I really trying to achieve here? And it's surprising how 
much my answer changed over the course of two weeks. You would think after like two or three days, you'd be like just feeling kind of like a dummy and you're like, it's always just the same thing over and over again. But actually your answer changes a lot. You know, there were a lot of things that I wrote down early on that turns out that was just a middle step and it could have been cut out entirely. Or there were things that I wrote down that I thought I wanted, but actually if I gave it a little extra thought, it was like, well, actually that's something my parents want me to do. That's something that my, my peers want. Like what, for example, James? The general idea is that I was writing mostly about what do I want to achieve in my personal life? So what, you know, we were building, we're like, I have young kids now, so we're in the middle of kind of building a family. So it was stuff focused around that. And then the second thing was, okay, I wrote this book. It's this bestseller. Now, what am I going to do next? And, um, you know, I kind of had to wrestle with that for a little bit because there's on the one hand, you could just like chase whatever the book brings in. So you could say, okay, I'll do more speaking or I'll turn it into a consulting company and we'll have an atomic habits certification and all that kind of stuff. And there are a lot of other authors that do that kind of thing. And I'm not criticizing them at all. Like that may be the right choice for them. To me, that sounds like a nightmare because then I got to have a managing 50 consultants. I have like this huge team. I don't I don't want to be a manager. I don't want to have a big team. And so if I was just writing down the obvious answer where it was like, oh, well, let me just grow revenue, then I end up living a lifestyle that I don't actually want. And man, you'd be surprised how often people are already making enough money to support their life, but then they choose to make more money, but live a worse daily life. <laughs> And to me, that seems like a terrible trade. Now, of course, there's some threshold, you know, like you got to take care of your needs. But if you're already at that threshold to choose to make more money and live worse days seems like an awful trade. And so often we talk ourselves into doing that. That's such a powerful point. Wow. I think that was something that helped me a little bit was that that process of doing that for two weeks. And I realized, you know what, what I should start with. And this is a, a line from my buddy, John, who's one of my entrepreneur, entrepreneurial friends. He, um, he says, the thing we start with is how do I want to live my days? And then inside that box, I can ask, how can I make the most money or how can I reach the most people or how can we do the most interesting thing? But only inside that box, not outside of it. And if you start with that, you end up with a very different set of answers than if you just start by asking, how can we make the most money or how can we reach the most people or how can we do the most interesting thing? Ideally, the objective here is to try to design a business, to design a lifestyle that you feel like serves you rather than feeling like, you know, you're chained to this thing that you created. I like questions like that, questions that prompt self-reflection and get you to maybe think about it with let's call them helpful constraints. If you have those helpful constraints, you often come up with a very uh, different answer and I think often better answers. That reminds me, I remember reading years ago uh, an interview with Jack White from the White Stripes where when he used to go in the studio, he they'd sort of pull different demands in a, in a hat. It might be like you can only play certain chords or certain instruments and then you'd pull it out and that would be the rule for the day where those constraints force them to be creative rather than just get into the usual habits and routines that stifle creativity. Oh, that's so good. I haven't heard that story. But, you know, the other nice thing about that is um, it gives you a place to start. And it's often better to have some kind of constraint to work around than to have a completely blank canvas because then that can be sort of paralyzing. When I was working on uh, 321, which is my newsletter now, and it has, you know, it's got 2 million subscribers and it's this, you know, this thing that's become kind of a big part of my business. But I started it in 2019. 
And I had already, I had already had a newsletter for, for years. And what I had been previously doing was writing two articles a week and they were, you know, 2000 words and I would spend 20 hours on each one. And it was, you know, it was kind of a big lift, but then when I'm working on atomic habits and writing the book, I couldn't do that anymore. I just, I was tapped out. I didn't have capacity to write the book and write the newsletter in that way. And so I was looking for a different way to have a newsletter and I started with the constraint of, okay, let's imagine that I only have like two hours a week to do this instead of 20. What would I do? Then I, I threw an extra layer on it, which is, is there a way, if you could just imagine all the universe of possibilities for how you could create a newsletter, is there some version out there that I could do in two hours a week that is not just as good as what I'm doing now, but is actually better than what I'm doing now? that actually people get more value out of than what I'm currently sending them. And I mean, I'm kind of optimistic about stuff like that, but I like doing uh, thought experiments like that. And I have to think, you know, you're not going to be able to think of everything in the world, but there's got to be something out there that's better than what I'm doing right now and fits that constraint. And as soon as you accept that, as soon as you say, you know what, there probably is, then it's just this little quest to try to find what that thing is. And, um, you know, I, I don't know if I hit the mark or not. That's kind of for the subscribers to decide. But I do think three, two, one has worked so well that it is evidence that um, I didn't totally miss. You know, like there's there is something about it that's working really well in that format, and it's such a better fit for the time constraints that I have. We can't have you on high performance without talking about one percent. Uh, it's been mentioned by some of our guests. Um, the focus on the one percent, making anything you do, everything you do. What questions should we be asking ourselves if we have the desire to be in that 1% and we need to make sure that our actions are living up to our ambitions? The first question we mentioned previously in the conversation, what am I optimizing for? So yeah, that's up to you to decide, but you got to be clear about it. You know, it's very unlikely that you're going to just stumble your way into peak performance. Um, you probably have to be at least somewhat clear about where you're going to spend your time and why. So what am I optimizing for? The second question is probably something along the lines of, can my current habits carry me to my desired future? And how do we know that, though? Signals of progress is probably the short answer. You, if some form of feedback. When I started out my entrepreneurial career, I started a bunch of different websites over the first two years, just tried a couple different things, see if they work. I started, I tried an iPhone app. I didn't create it. I paid a developer like a thousand bucks to make it. Um, and all of those projects, let's say, or there were four or five different things over that two year span, they were okay, but they didn't really do a whole lot. They, they were fine, but I could tell like this wasn't the thing, but I did hone my skills and I did learn how to build a website and I did, you know, I was picking up some things, but nothing was really taking off. And then I started writing at jamesclear.com. This is about, yeah, about two years in to, to starting uh, my entrepreneurial quest. And uh, I had just been doing freelance gigs on the side to make money and make ends meet. And um, within three months of writing there, it was pretty obvious that this was the best idea that I had had so far. Email subscribers were coming faster. People were more engaged. It just was clicking better. And... Um, most things that go well, they tend to have at least early signals of progress. It's it's very unlikely that it just completely falls flat. And then it's like, well, if you had just stuck with it, it's going to turn out to be something. You know, it's it may not be what you want right away, but you've got some signals that things are going moving forward. So I think that's what you need to look for are signals of progress. And that depends, you know, differs depending on the thing that you're doing. 
if I take another example from my personal life, so I've been training in the gym for, I don't know, probably 15 years now. Um, and then before that I was an athlete. And so I was loosely in the gym with the team and stuff like that. So I've been around the gym and weights for a long time. And, you know, I think just the way that I got into it, my dad was kind of interested in Olympic lifting and some of my friends were kind of interested in powerlifting. So I did more of those movements when I got done with my athletic career. Um, and it wasn't until like three years ago that I started doing more bodybuilding style stuff. And it took me a long time I and mean, it took me a decade before I stumbled into that, but my body just seems to respond better to that kind of training. I guess the two things to kind of wrestle with there to think about first you need to know what you're optimizing for, but then secondly, you need to be willing to experiment a little bit and try new things. And as you're willing to do that, you're looking for these signals of progress and eventually you're like, okay, this is a path that's a little more fruitful. So I think, what am I optimizing for? Can my current habits carry me to my desired future? Related to that, there's probably a little bit of like a, you're almost being ruthless with yourself about where you're actually spending your time. So one little thought experiment I like is, let's say aliens came down and they can't talk to you, but they can just watch you throughout the day. If somebody could see you, but they could only watch your actions and not hear your words, what would they say your priorities are? So you can't convince them. You can't tell them any stories. They can't be sold on your reasoning. They can only watch your behavior. And if you ask yourself questions like that, you start to realize like, oh, uh, I say that I'm optimizing for one thing, but actually my behavior doesn't match up with that as well. It's good to have a plan for how to change that, but just being aware of that, just noticing the gap between what you say you want and what you're doing, that alone, just noticing it will often change your behavior a little bit. So you're kind of like, first, you're kind of like narrowing your focus and figuring out, am I on the right path? And then once you're on the path, you're trying to figure out how can I move down it more quickly? How can I multiply the effort and the minutes and the hours that I'm putting in and so on? So they're all great tips on getting started. What stops us? What are the common mistakes that people make? There are probably a couple different ones, you know, and I'm sure there's more that I'm not even thinking of right now, but um, social constraints or social environment plays a huge role. So you might be able to do whatever habits you want to do for a day or a week or I don't know, a month or two. But if they go against the grain of the groups that you're around, if they create friction with the people that you're surrounded by or the people you work with, it's really hard to overpower that friction for a long time. Maybe you can do it for a little bit, but at some point, if people have to choose between, you know what, I have habits that I don't really love, but I fit in, I'm belong, I belong, I'm part of something, or I have the habits that I want to have, but I'm cast out, I'm ostracized, I'm criticized. I mean, a lot of the time people choose to belong, to fit in rather than choosing to like do the thing that they say they would like to achieve. So what you really want is to get those two things aligned. You want an alignment between your desired outcome, your daily habits that you're trying to follow and the social norms of the groups that you're in. So if you can find groups where your desired behavior is the normal behavior, then you can rise together. So I think that's probably one of the biggest long-term things is, can you surround yourself with people who also want what you want? And I'm not saying you have to do it for 24 hours a day, but at least for the amount of time that you're investing in your craft, can you be around them for, for that portion of time so that you're not trying to go against it when you're spending effort on it? What questions do you ask yourself for the people that get to have a, a seat on your bus? 
I don't really filter it like that. Uh, I like, I don't filter. I don't ask questions about the people around me. I'm like, Oh, can they have a seat or not? You know, can they stay around or not? Um, it's more like I think about the project that I want to achieve or the thing that I'm trying to create. And then I ask myself, who are people that are already in that world? Who are people that are already doing that kind of thing? And can I hang out with them? So it's less about like, who's allowed to be around me and more about like, who would I like to expose myself to? Who would I like to be surrounded by or influenced by? As an example, when I started out as an entrepreneur, I, I knew I wanted to have a business. I didn't even really know that I wanted to be an author. But gradually, I started to figure out, oh, hey, I kind of like writing. I'd like to do that a little bit more. I didn't have any authors in my family. I didn't have any friends who were authors. I didn't have anybody around me who was doing that thing or building a business like that. So... I sent a bunch of cold emails, reaching out to people, went to conferences, tried to meet some people. It took like probably two years or so, but gradually I got to know maybe, let's say, 20 to 30 people who were kind of doing that thing. And the best thing that I did was I started putting together these um, author retreats. And I would host like six or eight people and we would just split, you know, a house or an Airbnb for three nights. And then we would all get together and just talk about how to launch a book or how to build an audience or, you know, what we're writing on and just all the things that all the problems that we were dealing with in our businesses. And I tried to find people who were like a year or two ahead of where I was at. So I could still provide value because I was still doing the same thing, but I, man, I learned so much from them and, um, I would always leave those sessions and I would have like six months worth of stuff that I needed to execute on. Um, and so that's kind of what I'm thinking of when I say you want to join groups where your desired behavior is the normal behavior. You know, I would leave that session and then it'd be like, you know what? Now I know like six people who they're making a living doing it, you know, or like talk to a normal person and ask them, Hey, do you think you could sell a hundred thousand books that like, that sounds kind of outlandish, but now I could be like, well, actually like I know three people who did it, you know? So like, maybe it's not that crazy. I mean, at least I could look at their playbook and try to figure out how that could work for me. It doesn't guarantee success, but I think it does make success more uh, believable or more palatable. It gives you a pathway. And once you start to see what it looks like, then you can start to piece it together for yourself and try to figure out a version that works for your life. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. So can I ask you about a guest that we've had on the podcast before? It was a guy called Russell Kane. He's a really successful comedian here in the UK, James, and he spoke about a similar idea, but he introduced us to a concept called river jumping. 
So he was saying sometimes if you're in an environment where maybe comedians don't want to help other ones out, for example, how can you sort of go into different industries and look at the parallels of, say, it might be a, a fighter and how does a fighter prepare? So how he could then apply it to being a stand-up comic was the example he used. So what occurred to me in your case was that you're in pretty rare territory in terms of a copy of Atomic Habit sells somewhere in the world every 15 seconds. So how do you surround yourself with people that are in that similar rare territory then? Um, yeah, like, again, I don't really think about it that way. I mean, I'm not like really worried about measuring, you know, my success compared to somebody else's or something like that. It's more just like, what cool thing do I want to create? And who are people that I can be around there doing that kind of thing? But I do like the idea of river jumping. I like the idea of diving into these kind of disparate fields, seeing what peak performance looks like there, seeing what other people are interested in. And what can I learn from that? I think both strategies can be useful. So Mickey Stevenson was this uh, musician and uh, talent um, kind of coordinator, talent recruiter for Motown. Um, and he was the one that got Stevie Wonder and uh, Diana Ross and the Supremes and like a bunch of these really famous artists to come to Motown and create their music in the 60s. And um, he told me this story that he I can't remember who it was, but he was watching somebody perform. And at the concert, he was like, man, this is a really great show. And he gets about halfway through and he's looking around and he starts deconstructing what's going on. How many lights do they have on stage? How many musicians are up there now? How long between the sequences? Like how long does each dance routine last? And then when do they switch to the next one? He starts just looking at like, how are they assembling this really killer show? And that's something that I think is probably best done in your industry rather than river jumping. That's something that you look at the people who are really succeeding and then you try to deconstruct the things that you see that are cool. Whenever you see something that really lights you up, you should start to like pull that apart a little bit and see what the pieces are that it's made of. And you'll start to notice different things that you can do. I mean, there's this other story, uh, Mr. Beast, the YouTuber who's got, you know, like over a hundred million subscribers and one of the most popular YouTubers in the world. He's got this little clip where he talks about or in the early days, like, you know, 10 years before he was this massive success. He and his friends would just get on YouTube. They would get on like a call, a Skype call or Zoom call for, um, you know, like six hours a day and just look at YouTube videos and talk about what does the thumbnail look like? How, how long in, uh, in between transitions? How long is the video in total? Like, what's the lighting? They're deconstructing everything about it. How do you write a great title? And that deconstruction process is a really important part of succeeding because once you know what the ingredients are, then you can start to make your own recipes. You know, like it doesn't mean you have to use everything that everybody else is using, but you start to see what the commonalities are and you can start to put it together for yourself in a way that fits your style or your personality. So I think that is best done in your own industry. But once you've done that, once you've built this skill set where you've deconstructed what it looks like in your space, then river jumping is super powerful. Because you go and you say, okay, I'm just trying to become the world's greatest YouTuber and look at how do we produce these awesome YouTube videos. And you have all this insight on how they're deconstructed and what the elements are. And then you're like, hey, I'm going to go to this Formula One race and I'm going to look at their pit crews and see how they operate. And you pick something out about how that works where you're like, you know what? If we implemented that idea, we could probably upload two videos a day instead of one. And I'm so pleased that we've gone here because I think it plays into two things that we believe on this podcast are hugely important in taking your life where you want it to go, but are also under-celebrated and under-spoken about um, patience and consistency. I mean, neither are particularly sexy, 
but how important do you think they both are? Yeah, they're crucial. I mean, there there are a couple different ways to gain advantages in life. You know, you could have like more money, you could move faster, or you could just be more patient. And being patient is definitely a competitive advantage. You know, a lot of people will choose the projects they take on or the style of work that they do or the way that they approach a particular problem based on time constraints. And if you're willing to be more patient about something, you can take on projects that most people would like avoid entirely. So patience can really be valuable in order to execute on that. In order to capitalize on your patience, you need to have consistency. And so they kind of go hand in hand consistency. You know, there is some nuance to it. Seth Godin has a line where he says, uh, what really matters is being better. Um, and to be better, you often need to be different. But the thing about consistency is that being consistent is different. And so, um, a lot of the time, the way to be better is just by doing the thing everybody else knows they should be doing, but doing it more consistently. That is different. That is better. And so, uh, in that way, the fundamentals do provide an edge if they're applied over a longer time span than usual. And so greatness can often just be being good, but over a longer time span, uh, doing the reasonable thing, but over a longer time span. And if you can do that, if you can maintain that level of consistency, then you end up with a very different result. One of my favorite lines in your book, James, is um, the never miss twice philosophy. We did an interview uh, with a, a, he's a British sporting great called Jamie Peacock. He's a Titanic rugby league player. And he quoted your book directly about how that had been at the heart of his whole success was that if you made a mistake, you don't make, you don't miss twice. You double down and you make sure your next move works well. And I'd like to explore that with you because I think that one of the things we often talk about on the podcast is we embrace failure. Failure is where the learning happens, but it's about getting smart quickly as well. Would you tell us a little bit more about that philosophy and why it's so important? Sure. Well, first, a little, just a little point on your uh, thought about embracing failure. Um, I, I feel like this is something you hear from a lot of people who talk about, you know, especially like Silicon Valley startup culture, you know, failures almost praised, like, you know, things like that. And it, there is an element of truth to it. Uh, I don't think that you should be scared of failing because then that prevents you from reaching, that prevents you from trying. But I also think there's kind of an opposite uh, side or another side of the coin that's important to emphasize, which is you're never trying to fail. Like that's not the objective, you know, just because it's not like we're okay with it in the sense that, oh, it's fine. Like I didn't get the result I wanted that let's just stick with that. You know, like I'm, I am in fact trying to do my best every time I am in fact trying to figure out a solution that works. I am in fact trying to get an exceptional result. Failure is never the objective, um, but I'm not scared of it. You know, like it's not going to prevent me from trying. And in fact, I would say that actually Many people, their fear of failure or their fear of how they'll be judged or what other people might think or whether it will appear impressive enough for, you know, what they're hoping to, to um, instill on the people around them, that general fear, that worry, whatever form it takes, it ends up becoming like a break. And it, it like stops the car. It prevents you from moving forward. And my encouragement is to say, listen, let fear be the gas pedal, not the brake. 
And so in, I have all those same fears, you know, I'm worried about what the people who know me well will think of the next project I'm going to create. I, when I started writing, um, I, I still, this is even to this day, I still have never shared an article that I wrote on my personal Facebook page with like all the people who knew me from high school or college or things like that. Um, and why is that in the beginning? It was because I was worried about what they would think. I was worried that they would look at it and be like, oh, you know, look at this dumb little blog this guy has. So that sense of belonging was powerful there then. Oh, for sure. I mean, it's power. It's powerful. Yeah, it's powerful for all yeah. of us. You know, I mean, we all want to belong. That's one of the deepest needs that we all have. This is why those trade-offs are hard to manage because we all do want to fit in. We all want to connect. And also sometimes people will say things like, well, don't, don't care what other people think of you. It can be useful in a context, but there's a very good reason why we care about what other people think of us, which is it tends to serve you very well when people think well of you. It's very beneficial to have friends, to have support. Not only does it feel good, it also provides you opportunities. It provides you love and affection. It provides you support in your life that you need. So to care what other people think about you is like perhaps the most natural thing in the world to do. The question is not whether to care, it's just when to care. Rather than letting my worries about what other people think of me prevent me from writing or prevent me from creating, instead, I just used it as fuel to say, okay, listen, you just need to get to work now. You know, like you, you need to put even more effort into this so that you can make it truly great so you can create something that you're proud of. And if you use it as the gas pedal and not the brake, then it becomes a driver of creative output rather than a hindrance for it. The more that I kind of study or come across, read about people who are like peak performers in their particular industry, the more that you realize like everybody makes mistakes, you know, none of these people are perfect. And one kind of commonality across them is that they tend to be good about getting back on track quickly. It's not that they're good about never making a mistake. They slip up too. But most of us, I think, have felt this from going through life, which is it's almost never the first mistake that ruins you. You know, it's like the spiral of repeated mistakes that follows. It's letting one mistake become a new habit or a new pattern. And then you turn around three months later and you're like, oh, I lost that the last three months. But if you can never miss twice, if you can correct the mistake quickly, then, you know, you get to the end of the year and it doesn't really matter that much. The, the mistakes are just kind of a blip on the radar. So never miss twice is just a philosophy. It's an encouragement. It's a reminder to get back on track quickly to reclaim the habit. And if the reclaiming of a habit is fast, then the breaking of it doesn't matter that much. Uh, can you tell me your opinion of, of struggle, please, James? Because we think a lot of people come to this podcast because they think that learning from great people will free them from struggle and it will give them that sense of achievement, which we all know lasts for a very short amount of time before you chase after something else. And, you know, it was Seneca who said, he who has won a victory over the meanness of his own nature and has not gently led himself, but has wrestled his way to wisdom. Seneca there talking about the fact that it's the struggle that we should embrace, that, you know, the man who's walked through the shadow of the valley of death is the one who deserves admiration. What's your relationship with struggle? Uh, I, I probably lean more towards Seneca's style and approach. I think that um, being comfortable with challenge, being comfortable with struggle, seeking it out in pockets um, is is a really good strategy. As you kind of go through life, we all get beat up by life a little bit. You know, we all face challenges. And, um, you know, like when my parents were my age, uh, they had three young kids. My sister had cancer at the age of three. So they probably weren't trying to seek out struggle 
in that moment, you know, like life was giving them plenty to handle on their own. And that's fine. I don't think we need to try to act like we need to do more than that. You know, sometimes life just deals you a bad hand and uh, you need to deal with it as it arises. But when life doesn't challenge you, I think it's great to challenge yourself because you kind of hone that ability. You hone that strength to manage some of those more difficult times. Also, this idea that, and I know that you don't believe this, but just based on how you asked the question, that, oh, let me succeed and then I'll free myself from struggle. I think there's this Alan Watts quote where he says something like, you know, the brightness of the stars is only visible because of the darkness of the space behind them. And so you actually need the contrast. You can't, without the contrast, you don't notice how bright the stars are. And the same thing is true for the good feelings that you want to have in your life. The reason it feels really good to win a Super Bowl or to uh, launch a best-selling book or to um, get through some period of difficult trial in your life is because you had to struggle so much or put so much effort in ahead of time to get there. It's because it's so hard to do that by doing it, you can feel proud of yourself. And it's the contrast between all those dark periods that came before and the triumph that you're feeling right now that gives you the feeling of elation. If there wasn't any dark period before it, then there would be no contrast there and you probably would just feel like kind of neutral the way you do on most days. In that way, you almost can't have success without struggle because they're just, they, they require each other to provide the necessary contrast. There's so much about life where opposites are both true. You know, it's not, should you train or should you rest? It's, well, you actually need both. And the question is, do I need to train right now or do I need to rest right now? And so it's really a question in most areas of life, not about what to do, but about what to emphasize in this moment. And I think um, that also is true when it comes to struggle and challenge. Sometimes struggle gets glamorized so much. We almost think like if you're the type of person who works really hard and you're very ambitious, you almost feel like it has to be a struggle. Otherwise, it's not worth it. Yeah. There's like some kind of, you know, there's a badge of honor to be worn if you're always like uh, struggling so much. Look at how hard I'm working. Look at how much I'm suffering. And so that must mean that I have value. I don't think it has to be like that either. There are going to be moments like that for everybody. And when you need to step up and have that kind of mindset, you better be ready for it and not scared of it. But that doesn't mean that you need to live your life in a state of perpetual struggle, in a state of perpetual suffering. Um, there's nothing wrong with having peace and contentment. There's nothing wrong with stepping back and relaxing for a little bit. Um, and in fact, it's probably the balance between the two and emphasizing them at different times that allows you to perform at an even higher level. So it's not a question of um, either or, it's both and, but it's just when. So is it okay to throw a zero some days? I think so. I mean, nobody's going to be perfect. It's, um, it's not the objective, though. Again, it's very easy to get into this style where you're like giving yourself excuses um, and you're like, oh, well, it's okay to you know not show up. What I've come to find, so I had a day like this last week, actually. There was a day, I think it was Wednesday or Thursday last week, I really didn't feel like working out. Um, I've, I've been on a really good streak where I haven't missed in quite a while. And I just... I went to the gym and I was like, I just really don't feel like doing anything today. And it would have been very easy for me to give myself a story about putting up a zero that day. But instead, what I said was, okay, you know what? Like you can reduce the scope, but stick to the schedule. You don't have to do the whole thing if you don't want to. Let's just do the first set and see how you feel. So I did that and, you know, I felt a little bit better. So I was like, I'll do the next one. And then I just kind of got through the whole workout that way. And 
I got to the end of it and it wasn't like anything to write home about. I mean, I didn't have an amazing lift or anything like that, but I didn't miss. And I told my wife when I came, uh, came back afterward, I was like, you know, in a way I almost feel like the bad days are more important than the good days. Because if you show up on the bad days, then you maintain the habit. And if you maintain the habit, then all you need is time. But if you only show up on the good days, you're not really getting any separation between you and the average person. Everybody shows up on the good days. In a way, greatness only reveals itself on the bad days. That's the only time that you get any separation between the average performance and the exceptional one. So you need little mental tricks to help you get through it. And it's not the objective to have a zero. It's fine. Everybody's going to have them occasionally. And I don't think you should berate yourself when it happens. But um, it's better if you can find a small way to show up than to do nothing at all. I love that, James. There's an example that really resonates with me as you're saying it about um, I used to work in um, boxing. And uh, there was a young guy who was supremely talented who was uh, he was exceptional at sort of get it. So he would never set his alarm clock to run, but he would run when he woke up or he'd always be five minutes late into the gym and he'd be brilliant at distraction so that you'd never really call into task on it. And his talent got him all the way up to fighting for um, a title. And after halfway through the fight, he was winning the fight easily. But then it then came down to grit and resolve and being able to find a way through. And he'd never practiced those small habits of showing up on a bad day or getting through it. And he'd, he ended up losing the fight on it. And I remember his, his trainer saying precisely that to me. He's not lost a fight tonight. He's lost it over the last 10 years of constantly seek, like not showing up on a, on a bad day. That's an interesting um, point. It's a good little phrase. You know, he didn't lose it tonight. He lost it uh, over the last 10 years. There are a lot of things in life that are like that you know, where it's actually all the, the sum of all these little moments before the sum of your preparation that determine the outcome. In a lot of ways, like the outcome of Atomic Habits was baked in months and years before it happened. You know, it was all the articles that built the audience. It was all the revisions of the manuscript. It was all the prep for the marketing and the launch that happened months before a single copy was sold. It was, it was actually all of that. That was just potential energy getting released when the book came out. And there are many different things like that in life. I also think it's worth saying, like, I, I don't know anything about this particular story other than what you just told me, but, you know, most people never even make it to the title fight, you know? So this guy was there. Um, and that also should count for something, you know? Um, there, people just have different personalities and different makeups too. And that's okay. You know, like people have different things that they want to emphasize. And in a lot of ways, I think when you see truly fantastic outcomes, when you see really exceptional outcomes, it's this perfect matching, this perfect blending of personality and talent and situation. I heard it phrased one time, grit is fit. And the, their point is like, when you are well suited to an environment, when you are perfectly fit for the task that you're working on, then yeah, you're really gritty because it's the kind of thing that you're genuinely interested in that plays to your strengths, that addresses your natural curiosities. And so in a lot of ways, that's kind of the first big hurdle, the maybe the most enormous thing to try to figure out is what is something that is naturally aligned with what I really want to do or the way that I'm encoded, the way that I'm, um, you know, put together. And if you can find yourself a situation like that, then you're in a, a place where you're going to find like endless ways to improve because you're just naturally interested in it. You'll always be unearthing and discovering new little things that you could uh, tweak. If you're 
in a situation where you're not that well suited to it, or you're doing it just because other people are telling you you should, or you kind of are being like nudged into it, even the obvious improvements are going to feel like a hassle. So that's another question that I really like asking, which is what's the version of this habit that would be the most fun for me? Or what's the version of this habit that feels like it's the best fit for my style and my personality? There's not like infinite ways to do things in life, but there's almost always more than one way. And so you should choose the version of that habit that feels best suited to you and your style and your personality. And if you do that, you're in a much better place to improve. So give us an example of that in your world then. A lot of people, especially in January when, you know, the year's getting started, they they choose an exercise habit because they feel like, oh, I'm supposed to go to the gym or I want to get in shape this year. Or, you know, this is something I should do. But, you know, I like lifting weights, but not everybody wants to train like a bodybuilder. And that's fine. You know, like you could kayak or rock climb or ride a bike or do yoga or, you know, there's like an endless number of ways to live an active lifestyle. And you should choose the version of that habit that is most exciting to you. Another one, I, I did an interview with Tim Ferriss one time, and he was telling me that when he did his um, meditation habit for a long time, when he first started, his actual his meditation was he would listen to a song from Prince, and he would sit and meditate while the song was playing. Writing is another example. You know, I have gradually found that I like writing in shorter chunks. When uh, When I first signed the book deal to write Atomic Habits, the editors were encouraging me to write chapters that were like six to 8,000 words. But that's not really my style. Like I, I like writing things that are two or 3,000 words. And so eventually I was like, you know what? The structure of this book is just going to be different. And so what would this book like if it was going to be fun for me to write? Well, it's still going to be a lot of work, but it's going to be a lot more fun if I get to write in my style. So the chapters are short. So that's just, you know, there are a lot of different ways that that um, can express itself. But that basic idea of asking yourself, what would this look like if it was enjoyable? What would it be like to be someone who has fun doing this habit and then trying to find or structure the version of that? I think it just puts you in a much better place. And what habit have you stumbled upon that you'd share with us that has the biggest impact on the rest of your day? You know, on a personal perspective, the early morning allows me to bounce from thing to thing to thing. And I actually think that getting up early is one habit that maybe impacts seven or eight further down the line. Well, that's actually the key, I think, what you just mentioned, which is to ask yourself, which habit is upstream from other good things happening for me? And, uh, you know, it's easy when you sit down and think about the habits you want to change, especially for ambitious people, it's easy to start to get really aggressive about it and be like, you know what, what would peak performance look like? Here's the seven things I'm going to start doing. And, you know, you come up with this big plan. And instead, I would say, how about we back out a little bit and ask ourselves, what could I stick to even on my bad days? Let's start there with the floor. And then we try to figure out what is the one or two things, just one or two little moves that if I do this each day, I tend to live a good day. So your example is waking up early, which is a good one. For me, my workout habit is the one that kind of anchors the rest of my day. If I work out, then yeah, I get the benefits of exercise and that's great. But I also, I have a post-workout high for like an hour or two where I get like really good concentration. I tend to sleep better at night because I'm tired from the workout which means I wake up the next day and I have better energy. I tend to eat better when I'm working out. It's when I'm not working out that I kind of like, oh, who cares? You know, like I'll eat whatever I want. Now, at no point was I trying to build better nutrition habits or sleep habits or focus habits, but all those things kind of came as a natural byproduct of just making sure that I got the workout in. Some other common ones you'll hear people say, um, a lot of performers, comedians or basketball players or something like that, they'll have a visualization habit. 
if they do that before they step out on stage or step out onto the court, they're more likely to have a good day. Creatives will often talk about having a daily walk. That's kind of their anchor habit. They do that and the rest of the day kind of falls in line or the creative juices get flowing. So I think it's as simple as asking yourself, when I am really on, when I'm living a good day, what are some of the key parts of that day? And you'll probably come up with two or three things that work well for you. And I would say, start there, you know, like, man, if you can knock down that one key habit that is upstream from a lot of other good things, you're living a lot of good days there. If you can just get that done. And then once you've established a foothold and kind of mastered the art of showing up consistently with that habit, well, now you have a lot of things that you could improve or, you know, advance from there. James, this has been a masterclass. So thank you for being so generous and sharing it. We then have a quick fire questions that we'd like to throw at you. So the first one is, what are the three non-negotiable ha- uh, behaviors that you and everyone around you must buy into? The part about everyone around me is throwing me a little bit. I don't really, I don't think about it like that. Like I'm really not trying to force people to do stuff, you know, like I'm just trying to, I'm just trying to keep my eyes on my own paper and focus on what I'm doing. So Sleep is my big non-negotiable. I try to get, try to get enough sleep. It's hard when you got little kids, you know, like I, I got two young ones running around, but um, working out, which I already mentioned. And then I, for a long time, I would have said writing, but I actually think I'm going to put reading in that category because what I found is that if I'm reading consistently, the writing comes naturally. Those are three things that are really crucial for me to live a good day. What's one piece of advice that you'd give to a teenage James just starting out? Well, for my specific situation, I probably would have said, trust yourself and, uh, start earlier. You know, like there, there are a lot of things in life that your family and your friends often want you to be safe and you want to grow. And those two things are not always aligned. And so realizing that, you know, that if you do something a little bit different than what they want, it doesn't necessarily mean that it's bad. It also doesn't mean that if they don't support you in the way that you were hoping, it doesn't mean they don't love you or they don't want good things for you. It just is a difference in priorities. They want safety. You want growth. And those are two different things. So um, that's more for me personally, though. If we're talking about like, what do I think is good general advice for a teenager or what is something you would tell, you know, an 18 year old? Um I think it mostly comes down to focusing on getting started and being consistent. So I always encourage people to start with what in the book, I talk about the two minute rule, take whatever habit you're trying to build and you scale it down to something that takes two minutes or less to do. So read 30 books a year, it becomes read one page or do yoga four days a week becomes take out my yoga mat. And the real key there is that you're encouraging yourself to start small because you want to master the art of showing up. You know, you want to become the type of person that does it consistently. There's that quote from Ed Lattimore where he says the heaviest weight at the gym is the front door. And, you know, there are a lot of things in life that are like that. And encouraging yourself to find ways to make it easy to show up, to make it easy to open the front door, to make it easy to get started. um, That's where the battle always begins. And you can really get in your head about trying to theorize or come up with the best plan. I mean, we all do this. We want to come up with the best sales strategy or the perfect diet plan, the ideal business uh, strategy. But we often do that because we tell ourselves like, oh, I need to learn more before I can take action. But the truth is the best way to learn is often by taking action. 
The best way to learn is by getting in the arena a little bit, get started, gain a little bit of a foothold, try a few things out, see what works for you, and then improve and update and iterate from there. And so the two-minute rule kind of pushes back on that perfectionist tendency, gets you to master the art of showing up, and uh, start to get some results. And the final question from us, this is your your one last message to the people that have listened to this fascinating conversation. Thank you for being so generous with your time. What would you like to leave ringing in their ears, your one golden rule to a high-performance life? Well, we talked a lot during this conversation about what are you optimizing for? What are you trying to achieve? And I think a different way to frame that is around what kind of identity are you trying to build? Who is the type of person you wish to become? You know, for high-performing people, they often focus on results. And that's fine. Like, I get it too. You know, like, I'm really interested in results, and we all want to achieve great outcomes. But I think it's often better to start not with what do I want to achieve, but who do I wish to become? And then the connection back to the everything we've talked about, back to this discussion of consistency, back to this discussion of small habits and showing up each day, every action you take is like a vote for the type of person you wish to become. And I think this is the real reason, the true reason that habits matter. It's not because... Habits will help you make more money or reduce stress or, you know, get, get in shape. They can help you do those things. And that's great. But the real reason that habits matter is that they reinforce your identity. It's like each one, each action is like a little vote, you know, building up some evidence for being that kind of person. So no, doing one push up does not transform your body, but it does cast a vote for I'm the type of person who doesn't miss workouts. And no, writing one sentence does not finish the novel, but it does cast a vote for I'm a writer. And so take a little bit of time to think about that. Who's the type of person I want to cast votes for? What is the type of identity I wish to reinforce? And how are my habits shaping the story that I have about myself? And if you can get those two things aligned, then the results can kind of come as a natural byproduct. James, I can't thank you enough. Thank you so much. Really appreciate the opportunity. Thank you for being so candid and answering with such clarity. Thank you. Damien. Jake. Where do we begin uh, breaking that one down? That was phenomenal. That's really yeah. one of the most enjoyable interviews, I think, that we've ever had the privilege of doing. Let's do this a bit differently then. Let's tell people like, what we wrote down, because I think that's a good insight into what resonated with us and it may well capture. So the first thing I wrote down with a big exclamation mark is you don't stumble in. And I think that's a really good sort of takeaway for me from this conversation is that these things don't happen by accident. You don't develop atomic habits by just kind of hoping that you will. You know, it is specific decision-making. It's hard work. It takes thought and it takes process. Um, you don't stumble in. Love that one. I love the um, the one that you talks about, join groups of those that already have the desired behavior. I mm. think that idea that we've spoken about it before, haven't we, about peer pressure and that old quote that you become the sum total of the people you spend most time with. But I think when you look at who who's doing what you want to do and hanging around with them and picking the brains and then following on from that, that idea of if you were an alien and you couldn't hear somebody's justification, you could just observe them. What what behaviours are they doing that you can deconstruct? I thought that was immense. Let fear be the throttle, not the break. That is one I'm going to take away with me. And I also like the fact of, because, you know, I talk a lot about struggle. I think struggle's great. You know, it isn't the, I always say when Man United, you know, beat, I don't know, Kings Lynn Town, 5-0, they don't celebrate, right? When they beat Man City 1-0, they do. 
yeah. yet they've scored four goals less because it was a struggle to score the one. It wasn't a struggle to you know score the five. And I think that's where we have to remember that the thrill comes not from the achievement, but from the struggle to get there. So I loved that. Do you know, I think there was a really good takeaway for you as well here because let's just sort of paint a picture for people that know you from this podcast but don't know you other than that. Like you are the ultimate people pleaser, right? You know, you want to be there for people. You've got so much knowledge. You want to help people. You've got people, you're a bit like a scratching post for a cat. You've constantly got people wanting time with you. <laughs> I think what he's learned about either pricing himself out of the market or just being really ruthless about the things he does and doesn't do, I could sort of see you nodding along. I think there was a there was some good takeaway for you personally there, wasn't there? Oh, mate, there was that one bit where, you know, when he spoke about the idea that you can have like a really ideal life and then you make it worse to going yeah. after something else. Yeah. And that's for me. And why just, are you going after it? Yeah, that just hit me in the gut, that one that made me think that, like, like you're right. I'll tell you a daft story that years ago I um, I got myself in a bit of trouble because I was doing a people-pleasing job. I, I, I agreed to go and help a charity. <laughs> And I, I basically needed a four hours to do the job in, but I only had three hours to be able to do what I needed to help this charity and get back to what I was supposed to be doing. And I kept thinking, I'll, I'll work out a way. And I, and I didn't. And I ended up driving too fast and getting in trouble for breaking the speed limit. And I remember speaking to a, the solicitor that I had to get involved. And he said to me, he said, nobody gives a shit. You were doing the action. Don't keep justifying your why you were doing it or it was for a charity I was trying to help somebody no gives gives a shit they give a shit the fact that you were driving like an idiot at one stage and I think that was a big wake-up call that was one of his signals of progress for me of having to do something different but that hit me like a, a but the problem back. is how long ago was that thing with the charity uh 10 years ago but I think you still do it though that's 10 years ago and I still I think like <laughs> No, I know. What's the thing that there's... So maybe this is the conversation, doing <laughs> yeah. the things that actually make your life worse. But why are you saying yes to them? Um, what else? Um, greatness reveals itself on the bad days when you still turn up and you do it, even on the day when you don't want to, I think it's great. And the final one from from my perspective, the heaviest weight at the gym is the front door. Like just great. Just get on with it. Just begin. <laughs> yeah. Open the door. Yeah, I think I think the last one I'd chuck in is that, that one idea of everything you do casts a vote for the person that you want to be. So even just doing that small step gives you a cast a vote that writing a line doesn't finish a novel, but it gives you cast a vote for you being a writer. And that kind of thing is really powerful. I, I honestly I can't I can't advocate how much I took away from that. It's great. Thank you for your time, buddy. Thanks, mate. It was a real privilege that one. Well, it's time uh, for Damien and I's favourite part of any episode of High Performance, the chance to meet the people and speak to the people who are listening to the podcasts. And this is a really fun one for me because I'm about to speak to someone who's not only the son of a guest who's been on the podcast, not only a man that runs a business that I've actually invested in, but also my neighbour. So it feels a bit odd, Ollie, that I'm talking to you in my house. Damien's in his house and you're in your house and I could have just crossed over the road and had this conversation with you. How are you? I'm good, buddy. I'm good. No, thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. Right. So obviously people will be going, oh, I see. Jake's invested in Ski Yodel, Ollie's business, and therefore he's getting Ollie on the podcast to get more people. The truth is, though, you're here because of what high performance has done for you as, a, as an entrepreneur. So would you mind just sort of basically sharing your journey from, you know, when you lived in London and you were employed 
to what's going on now? So yeah, like real short story. I used to run a ski school in the Alps and, and lived in the Alps for 10 years and then came back to uh, to, to work in the city in London and, and kind of during that period, like being on the consumer end of the ski market, I kind of found it bizarre that the ski market hadn't really caught up with the rest of the sort of the travel market in terms of how technology had embraced, yeah, the whole sort of travel market as a whole. You can, you know, book a flight on Sky, Skyscanner anywhere around the world. You can, you know, go on to Booking.com, Airbnb, and the ski market was kind of stuck in its stuck in its ways in terms of still having to phone up agencies and, and spend, you know, days waiting for listing availability and being able to book. So it was kind of during that period that there was an opportunity for me in terms of where my career was to actually go and uh, and set up a company and and try and uh, bring technology into the space for the better uh, and to target a market that you know that demand technology and also try and you know, just make skiing more accessible for everybody. So that's kind of very much the ethos of, of what we're doing. So we are very much a technology led company. We founded the business uh, about four weeks before COVID kicked in. So um, that has caused its challenges, uh, you know, up to where we are now. So only a lot of people might have that idea where they see this potential opportunity, but actually taking it from idea to execution and taking that risk when it sounds like you had a good job working in the city is the bit that's that's doing the heavy lifting for me. I'm interested in, tell us a little bit about taking that risk and the courage required to do that. You know, my wife and I kind of had long discussions about it. Um, she was employed at the time and it probably was like the only real kind of you know opportunity where you know, we just had our first kid and, and, um, it was a massive risk, but it was something I was passionate about. It was an idea that I knew that there was a, you know, genuine gap in the market. And if we did it well, if we did it right, then actually we could scale it quite quickly. It, to answer your question, the timing was right. Um, but I had no idea how difficult it was going to be. So tell us about the difficulties then. That's right. Uh, I think, yeah, I think firstly, um, you know, the biggest challenge for us is for me was, you know, we, we were building a tech company. Uh, I'm, as I say, to quite a lot of people, probably one of the least techie founders of a tech company you're coming across. So actually not having that initial kind of CTO, chief technical officer type support at the very beginning. Um, so I think, you know, that was, that was sort of the hardest bit is, is then going out there and finding that, you know, that's kind of support network. And then it's actually just somebody, you know, some of the, the bits that I didn't envisage to be so hard, things like, you know, building a team and managing a team. And one of the big things, again, as a, you know, as a tech company is, is raising investment. When you kind of combine those all together and, and it's kind of everything's kind of on your shoulders as a single founder, you know, it can be a lonely place at times. And I think that's where, if I'm being honest, high performance has had such an impact. But I'll be honest, positively and negatively for me. And, and when I say negatively, it, it comes down to the fact that when I'm doing well with work, I love listening to your podcast. But actually, when I, my biggest fear in life, I, 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 I had this whole fear of failing. And when I'm not doing so well, that negativity kicks in. And that's when I don't tune into the podcast. But actually, that's when I need it most. Why do you think then that you don't tune into it when things are a struggle? When my confidence is being knocked, I find it difficult to then tune into the pod and, and, um, I kind of hear these, you know, these, you know, these stories and I go, oh, I'm, I'm not good enough. I'm not, you know, I'm not, you know, I'm not, I'm not, I can't achieve what these guys are now, you know, are now saying on the podcast. And, and so it almost has a sort of a negative connotation on, on how I feel, which is, which is ridiculous because that is, it's like going for a run or, or, you know, jumping on a tennis court when, you know, when you're feeling low, Chloe kicks me out of the house and says, you know, go for a run. And of course it makes you feel better. As the same as the podcast, it has been, um, I love listening to it. And, uh, but there are times where I, you know, I just, yeah, I find it a struggle. So, so tell us about, the kind of pressures that you do put on yourself then that because that's a really intriguing response now we've obviously had your brilliant dad on the podcast as one of our guests is 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 some of it about living up to his expectations 
So I, I always envisaged I'd be in the army. I've joined the army. And uh, I was grown up in an army background. I was in army camps all my life. I went, and I always thought I was going to join the army. Everyone said, you know, what are you going to do? I'm going to join the army. I'm going to join the army. I didn't think I ever really meant it. And so I went and did my RCB whilst my father, so the regular commissions board, become an army officer. And it, my dad was head of the army at the time. So I kind of went to this, you know, to the, to the, to the uh, regular commission board and 200 other potential officers there. And it's a two-day test. And uh, being a Danit, and it is a surname that, you know, it's a bit different. People kind of knew who I was and it caused a bit of tension. And I failed. I failed my regular commission board. I didn't get into Santa to be an army officer. And it was one of the hardest things I've ever experienced in my adult life because I just felt so embarrassed. It was the embarrassment of it all. Um, because everyone knew I was going. Everyone knew people that were there. They were like, oh, Ollie Dallant, you know, General Dallant's son. And my mates, like, oh, you're going to Sandhurst. And I, even though I, you know, I told everybody I was going to, yeah, I was going to go to the army. I look back at that still quite negatively. It had a massive impact. Mate, thank you so much, Ollie, for coming on and sharing the entrepreneur story, but also like that much more personal stuff, I think, about wanting to follow in your dad's footsteps. You know, obviously every single person at that time would have seen the name Danit written there and known that your dad, you know, Lord Danit, who's been on the podcast, as we say, you know, was the head of the British Army. Like that's a, it's a huge thing to talk about. So listen, thank you, mate. And I think I just want to wrap up by talking about community because I know that as we speak, there's a crowdfund raise going on for Ski Yodel, which is your business. I think trying to bring people on the journey with you is such an important part of what high performance stands for. And I kind of get the impression that actually um, Ski Yodel was kind of similar, building a community and not not running a business in an old fashioned way where you're like, we're a business, we're successful, you all come and spend your money. But instead creating a business where the people listening to this conversation can be investors, but can be more than that, they can genuinely be part of the business. Why do you think that is such a an important part of entrepreneurship in, in modern business? Community for us is so important. And um, fundamentally, yeah, we're building this this company that I want our customers to own um, and is accessible to everyone. So yeah, our community, we did a, a fundraise two years ago. Uh, we had 507 plus investors at that time. You know, they're out there championing the business for us. And I think it's a hugely important part of what we're doing as a company. I love that, Ollie. I think that's one of the big things that we found on the podcast is creating that community that lifts and inspires and supports each other is where the real good stuff happens. So thank you so much. I'm really inspired by listening to it. No worries. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Oh, well, what did you think? Do you know what? Do me a favour. Ping me a message on Instagram right now uh, and let me know what you thought of that. I'm at Jake Humphrey. And you know what? There's only two things I'd love you to do. First of all, subscribe to this podcast so you can get more incredible content like that on a weekly basis. It's free. It's free, this content. And I want you to hear it and get it and react to it and learn and grow from it. And secondly, I'd love you to share this. Please just ping a link to it on your Instagram, on your WhatsApp, on your LinkedIn. It doesn't matter where you are on Twitter, whatever. Just share it because this could be the conversation that changes the game for somebody else. And huge thanks to James Clear for coming on High Performance and sharing so much with us. We'll see you soon for another cracking episode of the High Performance Podcast. Podcast.